Thanks, David. Thanks, Ardith. We're in 1 Corinthians 16 today, halfway smack dab in the middle of the chapter. We're going to be studying two short verses, 1 Corinthians 16, verses 13 to 14. Do you know what happens when you give a kid some sugar? (laughs) Some kids have worse reaction than others. I know uh, some kids who are related to Dean and Nancy who are very, very susceptible to sugar. I won't, know, I won't say the name of the parents or the kids, but they're related to Dean and Nancy. In fact, they're so susceptible that after a period of time of Dean and Nancy giving these kids sugar and then sending them back to their parents, the parents are very tempted to feed the kids sugar and send them back to the grandparents. I won't tell you what happened and all that, but thankfully it all evened out and now the kids are not given sugar too much by the grandparents. Sugar brings a specific attitude to a kid. Initially, sugar can make someone feel hyper, excited, feel good, the adrenaline rushing through their veins. Uh, But when someone gets too much sugar, they've actually shown that too much sugar brings on anxiety and depression. Interesting fact. If you teach school, you can tell the kids who've been fed a high diet of sugar versus the kids who have not, who have a steady, healthy diet. I'm not here to talk about sugar, but it's fun to talk about. What we put into our body affects our attitude. Physical food affects our attitude. Spiritual food is the same way. What we put inside affects our attitude. It should. If we're followers of sports, making sports our life, our savior, we will have a specific attitude. And if you go watch a sports game, you can see the group of parents who are right over there next to the fence, and you can see how their attitude, how they're filling their life with sports has affected their attitude as they watch the kids on the field. If we make politics our life, our savior, we will have a specific attitude, specifically during election season, before and afterwards, if we make that our life and our attitude. What we put into our life, what we make our savior, affects our attitude. If we are followers of Jesus Christ, having said, Jesus is my life, I've turned to him in faith, turned away from everything else, he is my life, We've filled ourselves with him. We're not conformed to the pattern of this world, but we're being transformed by the renewing of our mind. Or we've demolished every argument and every pretense that sups itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to make obedient to Christ. If we're followers of Christ, truly followers of Christ, allowing him to fill us, we will have a specific attitude in life. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, our text, he says, to the Corinthians, you who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, do everything in love. Those phrases are short, they're sweet, they're fun to say, they're great to put on a wall, but they're very, very hard to live. We're gonna look at each of those phrases one by one as we consider how our faith produces a certain attitude in our life. 
Will you pray with me? Father, thank you that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords, that you are worthy of being lifted up and exalted. And just as you are worthy of being lifted up and exalted, you've come down to be with us, the God who is with us, the God who knows all that is going on in our life, the one who hears and the one who cares, the one who strengthens and the one who lifts. Thank you for being that God that we can know and we can cherish and we can spend eternity with. Lord, we love you so much. We ask that as, you, as we open your word and you, we study it, that you would affect our hearts and our minds and that we would respond with our hearts and our minds. As I'm up here, I ask that I would decrease and that you would increase. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Thanks, Father. Amen. I've already downed one whole bottle of water this morning. But after singing that song, I need some more water. Would someone mind going? And, thank you, Dean. Paul urges the Corinthians first off, to be on guard, to be on guard. It speaks of vigilance, zealously keeping watch. I think about a man in a deer stand, sitting, watching, waiting for hours upon hours upon hours until finally the perfect deer steps in front of him and he lets that deer have it and brings it home. Watching waiting, watching. But that's not quite the right illustration. A better illustration would probably be the soldiers at the tomb of the unknown so soldier. There. Been there several times. Love it. Arlington National Cemetery. This tomb is kept continually guarded by these soldiers. And they have this really cool changing of the guard ceremony that I could just sit and watch for hours upon hours. When I was a teenager, uh, after we came home from Washington, D.C. one time, my sister and I reenacted that, and that was our famous favorite thing to do for weeks on end. We would just reenact the changing of the guard, and we got those steps down to a science. It was beautiful to behold. These soldiers are standing there and pacing, and they're role, what they've been hired and charged to do is to guard that tomb, vigilantly, zealously keeping watch, making sure nothing happens to it. They have a care, they have a charge, and they guard it. The phrase is used by Jesus in Mark chapter 14. He tells his disciples, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch. This is the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before Jesus it hangs on the cross. And he tells his disciples, keep watch, be on guard. Well, they don't. They fell asleep, and when they wake up, they see Jesus surrounded by a group of soldiers because they did not keep watch. They were not on their guard. What were the Corinthians to be on their guard for? What were they to be watching against? This word, be on guard, watching is used for a lot of things. We see it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 4 to 6. Paul writes to the Thessalonians, he says, But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day the coming of Christ should surprise you like a thief. 
You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake, watchful, on guard. That's the same word that's being used, and sober. So this word is used for watching for eternity to come, for Christ, making sure we're on our guard, living how we're supposed to live. And lots of times this word is used that way. But Paul's not using that word this way in 1 Corinthians 16. After he writes the letter to the Corinthians, he travels back to Jerusalem, but he stops on the way near Ephesus, and a group of elders from Ephesus come and meet him in the seashore, and they have a nice little cookout there on on the Mediterranean, and Paul talks to the Ephesian elders about their role, and he exhorts them about a bunch of things and tells them in Acts 20, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. That's the word. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Be on your guard against evil teachers, false doctrine coming into your midst. He says the same thing in his letter. To, Peter says the same thing in his letter to the Gentile Christians in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Peter says, be alert and of sober mind. That be alert is the same word. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Our faith in Jesus Christ produces an attitude of guardedness, an attitude of watchfulness, an attitude of vigilance. Why? Because we have an enemy that wants to tear this church apart. The Corinthians were not on their guard, which is why Paul had to write this letter to them. The Corinthians were allowing all sorts of false doctrines and beliefs to seep into their midst. And Paul is calling them to wake up, grab their gun, and take a stand. Some people have asked me why we're going through the doctrinal statement. Because it's been set in stone, years passed, why are we reading it, making sure everything's fine, and all that sort of stuff. Because it's important for us to know, number one, what we believe. To say, hey, we do have a boundary, that this is truth. And and we believe that isn't. But it's also important to say we're not proud enough to think that we have everything together. That what was set in stone before that a group of people in the past generation put together, they might not have had everything to get together either. So we come together and we publicly say this is what our statement of faith is. During adult Sunday school, that's what we're doing it. This is what our statement of faith is. Do we actually believe it? If we do, are we living according to it? If we don't, do we need to change or possibly is there a false teaching in there? Because even through doctrinal statements, false teachings come come in. We must be on our guard. Do we actually believe it? Is it actually true? As we're going through the doctrinal statement or statement of faith, there are some things that we are taking out of it because we say, no, this isn't right to be in it. Biblically, we don't see proof of it. There's some things we're going to be putting into it because there's a stand that we must take in today's society on some things and to say this is what the Bible says and we must put a boundary there. We must be on our guard against false doctrines or beliefs that pop up in our midst or that might have popped up in past generations. We must clear those out. We are to be on our guard. Paul says not only are we to be on our guard, but we are to stand firm. We're to stand firm in the faith, stand firm. I've spent some time 
in Pensacola, Florida, in my past life, uh, my favorite spot is a place called Naval Live Oaks. It's a National Conservatory, National Park thing. It's filled with a type of tree called the live oak tree. I don't know if you've ever seen one of these trees. They're beautiful. They're awesome. I love live oak trees. The way the branches grow just doesn't seem natural. They, it's like aliens from outer space just popping up out of the ground. It's crazy. But they grow that way. They're all twisted and gnarled because they have withstood hurricanes over the centuries. This is a 1,000-year-old tree that's grown on the coast of the Gulf of Mexico that has outlasted hurricane after hurricane after hurricane after hurricane. It shows the effects of those hurricanes, but it still stands. They, it still stands. Standing firm is what those trees are doing. And standing firm sounds great. There's lots of times we go through hard times and people will say something that's very much akin to, oh, just stand firm, you can make it through. But how do we? How can we be like these live oak trees when the storms of life come? Jesus tells a parable in Matthew chapter 7, a parable that every kid who goes to Sunday school knows. Therefore, everyone who puts these words of mine, Matthew 7, 24 to 25, hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew, beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it, its foundation was on the rock. It had a way to stand firm. It's the noun version of the adjective of standing firm. We know the story. We hear it all the time. The rains came down, the wind, floods came up. The rains came down, the floods came up. Old Sunday school song. Person on the built a house on the sand, went flat. I talked to a lot of people about this, and I asked them, what is the rock that we're building the foundation on? And good, the good Sunday school answer is Jesus Christ, which is great. Yes, awesome, like it, not what the text says. Jesus said, the person who hears the words of mine and does them is like the person who built his house on the rock. The teachings of Jesus found in the Bible, they're the solid rock. The person who lives according to these teachings will not fall. There are plenty of people who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, and they talk a great talk, but they do not live according to the teachings of Jesus, and one day their house will fall. Paul said it this way in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15. He said, Then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether we passed them on by word, of mouth, or by letter. Hold fast to the teachings that have been passed on to you. Paul is pleading with the Corinthians in our text to stand firm in their faith. And when he is referring to them as saying, stand firm in your faith, he's not referring to this quasi-psychological state of faith where people come up to you and say, you know what, just have faith and you'll be fine. Just have faith. Paul's not talking about standing firm in faith. He is saying, stand firm, have an object. You have an object, you have a basis, a foundation for your faith, which is found in the word of God, and it's this 
is what we stand firm on. The book of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance in what we do not see. Through that chapter 11, he details these great saints of old from the Old Testament and and going into the time of Christ, uh, men who had faith in God and acted upon their faith. But it was important when he detailed these men in Hebrews chapter 11, these men, their, their faith is not an emotional thing. It's not. It's not, I have this feel-good feeling and I'm going to get through life on it. They weren't compelled because they, of how they felt. They weren't compelled because of what they ate. They weren't compelled because they had this spiritual itch in their knee. They received the promises of God based upon the truths of God and that had been passed down to them and they stood firm on those. They stood firm on their faith, the confidence and what has been passed down to them. It's truly amazing, the cycle that, of, of the person who lives by faith and stands firm on faith. Because of our faith, we're able to stand firm because we know what is true. And when we stand firm because we know what's true, our faith increases. And because our faith increases, we can stand firm. It's this, this cycle that goes on and on and on. Paul, in these two sentences, throws up two sides to a coin. He, he, he talks about how we are on our guard against false doctrine and belief in teaching. We're saying, that's bad, I'm not going to stand on that. Instead, we stand firm on faith, on what we know is true, and and we don't move from that. What does it look like to stand firm on faith? It means that when hurricanes of life come billowing through and sand is whipping up around us, telephone poles are snapping, roofs are peeling off, streets are being flooded with water and trash spiritually, everything that is going wrong in our life is... We take a note from the live oak trees who have dug their roots deep in the foundation that is beneath them. And we dig our roots deep into the truth and we hold on. We hold on. We go through hard times and people come speaking some really nice sounding stuff to us that seem to be exactly what we need in that moment but unfortunately is not what the truth tells us. And we don't listen to them and say we listen to the truth that we've believed. And we hold on to that truth. We hold on to our faith, no matter what. We're in school, and the waves of culture and false teaching come flooding over us. And we feel like it's just gonna drown us. And it's not worth holding on to the truth because we'll lose friends, we won't get good grades, we'll get picked on, whatnot, and we hold firm to our faith knowing that this is what is true, not what culture says, maybe not what our teacher says, definitely not what our friend says. This is what is true, nothing else. This is what will last. Nothing else will. Paul says, stand firm in faith. Stand firm in our faith. He says, be courageous. This is a fun word, courageous. Be courageous. Now, the NIV translates this, be courageous, and I have to read to you the New American Standard just because I have to geek out a little bit for you. New American Standard says, act like men. Pick up the King James, it says, act like men. If you pick up the English Standard Version, it says, act like men. The word, can you guess what the word literally means? Act like men, thank you, yes. Some modern translations, such as New American Standard, not New American, NIV, New International Version, and others, don't like gender stereotyping. 
So they fleshed out this word to me, say, be courageous. And it is an aspect of what Paul is writing. Because if you look at where this word is used in secular literature, I said I was going to geek out, I'm sorry. In secular literature of, of, of Paul's day uh, and all these writings then, when a writer told a man, man up, in his day, they were telling them, be courageous, is what they were saying. The men in this time were called, their role was to fight their wars. Their role was to go through hardships and starvation, so the women and children didn't have to. Their role was to do courageous things. Josephus, the historian of this time, talks about Jewish men fighting a war, going against a city that is heavily guarded, and these men are running to this wall to scale it, and and there's soldiers up there, and these men know that they're running to their death. And he uses this word, saying these men are acting like men. They are being courageous. So yes, courageous is an acceptable translation. But there's more at stake what Paul's writing about than just perceived masculine versus feminine attributes of this time. One not only used this word for being courageous, but at this time, people also used this word for adult versus child. And I've seen this kid multiple times in my life. As I grew up, there reached a certain point in my life when my parents looked me in the eyes and told me to man up, to start, stop acting like a child and start acting like an adult. And my sister says they should have started doing that way sooner. <laughs> I'm already having conversations with my own, my own kids of what does it mean to be mature? What does it mean to start sacrificing for the good of others? What does it mean that getting to be older really is rough? It's a lot nicer to be a kid. But you've got to start stepping up and making some sacrifices and making some decisions for the good of others. Earlier this, in this letter, Paul writes about spiritual children to the Corinthians. He tells them in 1 Corinthians 3, brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit. No. But as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ, I gave you milk, not solid food. For you are not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? You're not acting, are you not acting like mere humans? He's saying, you're kids. I can't treat you like spiritual adults. Man up. Become an adult. Ten chapters later, in 1 Corinthians 13, 11, Paul reflects. He says, when I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put... There it is. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. He's telling them, there's such a thing as spiritual children, and there's such a thing as spiritual adults. Act like men. He's urging the Corinthians, to be courageous, to stop acting like spiritual kids being pulled by desires and emotions, by culture and other people's opinions, to stop working for their own good and start working for the good of others, to start diving deep into the things of Christ, desiring richness of the meat of the word instead of the milky fluff that is out there. Becoming an adult takes courage. There's a t-shirt and a sweatshirt and all sorts of stuff out there with the phrase, adulting is not for the faint of heart. 
And that's true in life, and that's true spiritually. Being a spiritual adult takes courage. It is saying, I will be on my guard against false teaching. I will stand firm in my faith. And I'll make decisions based upon my faith instead of on the culture. I'll make decisions based upon my faith instead of on my emotions. I'll make decisions based upon my faith instead of what my enemies tell me. I'll make decisions on this. I will remain distinctively Christian, which oftentimes takes courage. In today's world in America, we're having to step up and take a little more courage and a courageous stand than we used to. Our kids in our school are having to take a stand with a little more courage than what they used to. But we still have it so good compared to what has been told to us in Arabic countries, in Palestine right now, where people are literally having to stand up and be courageous, being spiritually mature in the face of a gun. But they're doing it. Paul says, be on a guard. He says, stand firm. He says, be courageous. He says, be strong. Be strong. Now, I've been very word-based with this sermon, and I've geeked out a little bit with you, and, and, and I need to get a little more technical, a little more geeking out, so I'm sorry. My mom was an English teacher, and she pounded English grammar into my brain. I hated it. I hated it. I hated writing. My mom would tell me, write a letter to your grandma and grandpa. And I would sit there at the table, and I'd sit there for three hours because I could not figure out how to write this letter. And finally, after three hours, I get out with, hi, how are you? I'm fine. I'm going to go out and climb a tree. I love you. Bye. And that'd be the type of letter I'd send to them. And of course, they loved it, because they loved getting letters from their grandkids. I hated writing, but now it's a curse. All I can think about is words and grammar. The word that is used here for be strong is not what is called an active word. It is a passive. What does that mean? It does not speak of someone strengthening themselves. It speaks of someone being strengthened by someone else. Consider the life of John the Baptist. John, Luke chapter 1, verse 80, talks about John the Baptist. The child grew and became strong in the spirit. He did not make himself strong. He became strong in the spirit or by the spirit. And he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. And he ate locusts and wild honey, which is always fun to talk about with my kids. Paul, John the Baptist was not strong himself. He was strong because of the spirit of the Lord that was in him. Consider what Paul wrote to the Ephesians here in Ephesians 3.16. I pray that out of his glorious riches, this is Christ, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. Same word that's being used. Again, passive, not active. Someone is working to strengthen the Ephesian Christians. They are not strengthening themselves. The spirit of God would strengthen them. Paul tells the Corinthians in our text, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong. Sometimes when we see this phrase and how we interact with this phrase, we think about this guy in the gym, lifting weights, doing push-ups, doing the rowing machine, doing all these things to strengthen himself. 
We read this verse, we say, okay, be strong. I must make myself strong spiritually. I must do it. I must go through these exercises. I, I, I. But this is not what Paul's referring to because that's not what the word is. The word is a passive word. The Corinthians are being made strong. We are to be connected to a source that produces strength in us. Consider the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 40, verses 28 to 31. Do you not know, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. What does he do? He gives strength to the weary. He increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. I love that passage. What is the key to strength that Isaiah tells it? Is it having a big sword or huge automatic weapon holding it like Rambo saying, come on Satan, I'll take y'all on. No. The key to strength is hoping in the Lord. Isaiah says, those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They'll rise on wings like eagles, they'll run and not grow weary, they'll walk and not be faint. Standing firm on our faith, we turn to Jesus and we say, help, because I can't do it. I need your strength. Psalm 119, verse 28, my soul is weary with sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Standing firm on our faith means that we turn to the word of God and we say, help, because I can't do it myself. I need your strength. Being strong spiritually is admitting that we are weak, that we cannot do anything. And we turn falling on our face flat before the one who does everything. And when we do that, we are strong. It's crazy to me how many times I feel weak. And I try to muscle through life. Whether it's through decisions, through temptations, and I want to be strong. Because I've known Jesus for how long? I'm spiritually strong. I, can, I know the word of God. I can do this. I can, if I'm spiritually strong, I must be able to go through this on my own. But that just shows me how spiritually weak I am. Because strength is standing up and saying, I am nothing. I cannot do it. I cannot muscle myself through it. I need Jesus. Even Paul in Ephesians chapter 6, that great spiritual warfare passage that everyone loves about the putting on the full armor of God so we can do battle. He says, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Then put on the full armor of God. We are not able to take a stand against the devil's schemes unless the Lord's strength is flowing through us unless we turn to God and say, help. Think about salvation, the gift that is given. It's given to those who give up, who admit that they are weak and that they need God to do everything. There's so many religions and denominations out there that say, no, you must work your way into salvation. You must check these things off and say, do, 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 do. And once you have done, 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 then hopefully, possibly, you've done enough for God to let you in. But scripture tells us, no, it's for those who give up, who say, I am nothing, and I can do nothing, and I'm gonna throw the list behind me, and I'm gonna go to Jesus who's done everything. Paul says, be on your guard. 
He says, stand firm. He says, be courageous. He says, be strong by plugging into the one who is strength and leaning onto him. Finally, he says, love well. Love well. Do everything in love. Verse 13 and 14 are like two sides to a coin, two actions that are so intricately tied to each other. It says, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, do everything in love. It's a very long way of saying what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter four, verse 15, where he says, speaking the truth in love will grow to become in every respect mature, the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13, Paul speaks of standing firm for truth by being on guard against false teaching, by standing firm in the gospel, what we believe, by being courageous and spiritually mature, by being strong in the Lord. It's all about the truth that we are standing on. Then he turns to love, and he says everything must be done in love. Everything. Everything. These all things would include the quarrels in the name of leaders that Paul addressed in chapters one to three. It would include their attitude toward him in chapters four and nine. The lawsuits that he wrote about in chapter six. Husband-wife relations in chapter seven. The abuse of the weak by those with so-called knowledge in chapters eight to ten. The abuse of the have-nots at the Lord's Supper in chapter 11. The failure to edify the church in worship in chapters 12 to 14. Paul says, hey, if you are doing everything in love, I wouldn't have to write this letter to you because none of this stuff I addressed would be happening. We are the family of God. And we as Calvary Bible Church are called to love each other. Those who are part of this family, those who are not part of this family. The old song goes, they will know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they'll know that we are Christians by our love. Unfortunately, many churches have forgotten that truth and think they will know we are Christians by the truth we stand on. Most churches do one or the other. They stand firm on truth or they love. They either live verse 13, or they live verse 14. They stand firm on truth, making sure that nothing which smells of false doctrine comes into their midst. Or they love people, accepting everyone in their fold, come what may. And in America, we have those two extremes. We do. We Churches tend to be going more towards the love everyone side these days, and we've got a few churches that are stand firm on truth. Historically, we as a church have been a stand firm on truth, come what may, church. And we've done a lot better with truth than with love, which is why in years past, we went through a whole bunch of different splits because people were more concerned about their small little doctrine of truth than about loving brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm grateful that we have grown in this and God has brought people in to help us learn how to love each other as God has called us to love. It's very hard to do both. It's very hard to speak truth and love well. It's very hard. Humanly, we either go to the one extreme than the other. It takes God working through us 
for us to do both. How do we do it? How do we do it? It's not us telling ourselves, I will speak truth and love well, and I will teach myself how to do that. That's not how it works. Whenever we try to teach ourselves to do it, it just doesn't work. It's by remembering the gospel. Paul wrote in Romans chapter five, verse eight, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God declared the truth. He spoke the truth unequivocally, bold, out there. We are sinners. We live in a world that no one likes to hear about sin, and no one likes to be called sin. But God said, we are sinners. Everything that we do is sin. Every part of our being is marred by sin. That is who we are. We are sin. Our sin separates us from God. Our sin deserves death, both physical and spiritual, an eternal separation from God, and all that is good. We are sinners, and that is our doom. That is the truth. God spoke the truth. And because he spoke the truth, we were able to see love. Because through the truth of God, God's love shined forth. Because of his love, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us when we did not deserve it, when we could do nothing to earn it. He said, I will prove my love by loving you unconditionally and completely. God spoke the truth, demanding that we live a life according with his way, with his truth, not creating our own, not doing our own thing, but in line with him. And because we could not live in line with his truth, he fulfilled the truth by sending Jesus because of his love. When we realize the gospel, when we have fallen on our face before the King of kings and Lord of lords, the creator of all things, and have accepted his amazing gift, when we say, I could not do it, and therefore my faith is completely in you, not in myself, we will then begin living according to the gospel. We will be able to speak truth and love well because we will imitate the God who did it perfectly. We will be able to turn to someone and say, this is the truth, this is what God says. And I'm not saying this because I'm placing on this you, I'm telling you what God has said. This is the truth. And, and when you hear the truth, I'm gonna love you through it and say, Jesus died for you. And I'm gonna embrace you and I'm gonna love you until finally you can see that the God who spoke this truth loves you too, and you can repent and turn to him. We speak truth and we love. We hold up, these are the boundaries about our life that God has placed on it, and I'm gonna love you until you come into it. We live in a world that needs a group of people who will stand up and live the gospel with their life, who will stand and say, this is the truth, and I'm going to love in everything. Both, completely, all the time. Not speaking the truth all the time and sometimes loving. Not loving all the time and sometimes speaking the truth. Both, all the time, for the glory of God until he comes and calls us home. Paul says, Christians, those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, these must be our attitudes in this life. Be on guard, standing firm, courageously strong, and doing every single thing in love. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for being the God who loved us first.
who saw us for who we were, realizing we could not do anything to come to you because of our own sin, and sending your son to die on the cross, they might know you completely. Thank you that you come in on the day of salvation and you change us, creating us anew, giving us your attitudes and your desires if we would just live them. Father, help us to live those attitudes. Help us to stand firm for you. And through our life, the truth we say and the love we show, that people would see you and want to know you and they would find the amazing gift that we have and cherish it. Thanks, Father. Amen. Let's stand and take our hymnals and turn to him.